Let's pray. Father in heaven, the, the greatest gift that you could give any preacher on Christmas Eve morning is the gift of your Holy Spirit. Would you come? Would you unwrap that gift for me? All I want for Christmas is the opportunity to lay bare the Word of God for this congregation. Father, thank you for the simplicity of what we're doing here. This is, um, it, it's, deceit, it's deceitfully simple. Read the Bible, explain the Bible, press the Bible home in application, all the while leaning on a power outside of ourselves. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make a demonstration of your power as Jesus is made much of. And as we get practical help, real cookies on the bottom shelf help for us as we move in to tonight and tomorrow and to New Year's Eve and the rest of the holiday season. We need it. We're leaning on you now. As we I said in the fellowship hall to somebody last Sunday, we want to lean so hard on the Bible in a sermon like this that if you took the Bible away, we would collapse. So may we lean hard on the Bible trusting your Holy Spirit to do great work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves at the final Sunday of Advent. It's, it's hard to believe. Our, our focus this all-too-brief season has been Luke chapters 9 and 10. The guys are working on that ring, okay? So let's be patient. Luke chapters 9 and 10 with a preaching series that we have entitled Unsentimental Christmas, unsentimental Christmas. And the contrast, to put it mildly, has been nothing short of, of alarming. Um, while our, our culture has been awash in a sea of, of sentimentality the last several weeks, we have heard our Savior deliver teaching after teaching, some of the sharpest and most sobering teachings in the New Testament. We learned beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that with his face set toward Jerusalem, in the verses following, he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He told one of his would-be followers this Advent season, leave the dead to bury their own dead, and you come and follow me. He told another would-be disciple that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And if any of us came here looking for a, a warm and syrupy and schmaltzy sentimentality from Jesus over these last several weeks, we have found ourselves profoundly disappointed. There are many words that can fittingly describe our Savior and His public teaching ministry, but nostalgic, uh, sappy, sentimental just aren't among them. So now, in our final week, we are in part two of Luke chapter 10. And try as we may, we have not been able to escape Jesus' razor sharp and finely cut teaching. It's as if he ratchets it up a notch in these last two weeks of Advent. He says, the harvester is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says to us, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then came the woes last week. Woe to the unrepentant cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. And yet, Luke chapter 10 is all about mission. 
It's about outreach. The, the focus is on the evangelistic outreach of his rank-and-file disciples. Remember that? The 72 that were sent out last week. And so this broader portion of Scripture um, actually extends into verse 24. It's one long section, and we've just decided to take it in two parts. We've got one big idea on your sermon outline, and it serves as the big idea for both last week and this week. Six points between the last these two Sundays. So let's remember the way that we are practically seeking to apply this portion of the Bible before we dive in. The same idea last week and this week, and it's this. Christmas season is made for mission. So don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. Christmas season is made for mission, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. In the last week, we had the first of three truths about evangelistic outreach from chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Three truths. First, evangelistic outreach is a y'all go to the church, not a y'all come to the culture. Secondly, evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long. And then third, evangelistic outreach is a reminder to believers that our union with Christ is indescribably and exhaustively profound. That's what we learned in the first half of this story. Now this morning is part two. All good things come to an end, and so will your window during this Christmas season with loved ones and friends and colleagues and neighbors and so on. You have an opportunity probably, many of us will have opportunities, immediate opportunities to mix it up with people who are far from Jesus over the next 24 hours, 48 hours, even into the New Year's Eve. And again, even if you don't foresee any great evangelistic rally in your future, simply the matter of fact is that we are swimming in a sea of unbelievers. Everywhere we look, there are unconverted people. They're at the grocery store, they're at the gas station, the bank, the library, the gym. Unbelievers abound. And by grace, we want to redeem the time that we spend with them. So the question is this, based on our text this morning, how ought we to think about, um, how ought we to process our outreach activity on the back end of this holiday season? Because it is going to come and go. How do we seek to evaluate our evangelistic investment once it's been made, for better or for worse? How do we Monday morning quarterback what's going to happen over the next couple of days? Does Jesus have any wisdom for us here? Well, it turns out he does. And in the time that remains this morning, I'd like to offer three ways to reflect upon your your missional endeavors over the next week or so. Three truths from our passage that will help to frame your thinking as it relates to saying a good word for Jesus over this holiday season. The first point today, fourth point overall. As you return from the mission this Christmas, cultivate your joy in proper proportion. As you return from the mission field this Christmas, cultivate your joy in proper proportion. Would you follow along with me now as I'll read once again Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. Luke 10, 17 to 20. 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written 
in heaven. So as you return from the mission this Christmas, cultivate your joy, do that, but do it in proper proportion. Verse 17, Luke tells us something that is awfully easy for us to breeze by and we ought not. First phrase in verse 17 says, the 72 returned with what? Joy. Joy. The word for joy appears nearly a dozen times in the pages of Luke's gospel. Luke uses the word joy more often than does any other New Testament author, Paul included. Luke loves this word. It's present in the infancy narratives that begin this gospel, and it's particularly familiar to us this time of year. Elizabeth says to Mary in celebration of the soon-to-be-born Messiah, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, For behold, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for what? Joy. The little John, pre-born John, leaping for joy at Jesus. And in the anticipation of the first Christmas day, the angels themselves say to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great, what? Joy. That will be for all the peoples. Later on in Luke's gospel, I think we'll get there maybe summertime, uh, Luke chapter 15, we'll come to the triple parable, one of the most beautiful sets of teachings in uh, Luke's gospel. Lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son, Luke 15. And in those stories, they are designed to point to us uh, a portrait of the heart of God the Father for lost people. And we hear Jesus say in Luke 15, verse 7, the parable of the lost sheep that was found, he says, just so I tell you, there will be more, what? Joy Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And he says it again, one more time, Luke 15, 10, parable of the lost coin that was found, just so I tell you, there will be joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so here in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. Why? Because they have been about the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus. Do you know this joy? It's the joy of an ordinary person swept up into an extraordinary aim and mission. Remember, the New Testament does not record for us the names of a single person among the 72. We can guess all we want. We just don't know who these people are. In that sense, they're no different from you and me. Do you know the experience of being empowered by God to push back the forces of darkness as you open your mouth to tell a lost person about Jesus? If you know what that's like, then you also know joy of such a quality that there's almost nothing that rivals it. And I say almost nothing because Jesus says there's something that's even greater than sharing the gospel with another person. We'll get to that in a second. But just a point of application here. Many of you, like me, wrestle with worry and fear and anxiety, especially around unbelieving family or especially around neighbors who've just seen you a little bit too much. Like they've seen you in your pajama pants in in the driveway, you know, and you just think, I don't know that I could really even share the gospel with these people, right? There's just the intimidation factor. I wrestle with that. Fear can be crippling. And you just need to know that if you don't take a risk, if you don't roll the dice, if you don't trust the Lord in these situations, if you don't love people more than you fear people, you will be a stranger to this sort of exaltation that they're experiencing here. 
What the 72 are experiencing here at this point is real and it is wonderful. And notice that their joy is not just rooted in mission broadly, but in a very specific part of their mission as they understand it specifically. Listen one more time, verses 17 into 19. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What's fascinating here is that while the disciples are evidently just overcome, clearly overcome with the power that they possess over the demonic realm in Jesus' name, Jesus doesn't tell them that's not true. Uh, he, he admits in verse 18 that as they were preaching, he actually saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then, of course, verse 19, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall, shall hurt you. And friends, here's the, here's the connection between the first century and the 21st century. That power was not just theirs alone. And this reality ought to dismantle the fear of man in evangelism. Hear me, if you are a Christian, Satan himself trembles at the power to which you are connected. New Testament is replete with promises along these lines that we too have such power to defeat the devil in Jesus' name in battle. James assures us, James chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter offers a similar instruction in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and then the command comes, resist him. And the thing is this, Peter wouldn't say it if we couldn't do it. Paul says as much too. You know this passage in Ephesians 6? Ephesians 6 is about the whole armor of God. Paul commands us in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then again in Ephesians 6.16, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How many of the flaming darts of the evil one? All of them. How is it? That all of this is true for us. Well, it's, it's true because as the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You say, that's huge. I say, I know. It's big. It is huge. We have power to resist the devil. And that's what the 72 are freaking out about here. They lose their minds. I'll tell you what, in, in the context of mission and evangelism, that comes in awfully helpful that the devil is back on his heels as we seek to share the good news of Jesus with lost people. Through Christ, we can defeat the works of the devil in, in evangelism. Resist the devil, he'll, he'll flee from you. And yet, regardless, notwithstanding, Jesus has a word of correction for the 72 in this text. And for the 72 in this sanctuary, although maybe we're a little more than 72 this morning, it's a word that's designed to restore the actual magnitude, the appropriate measurement, the fitting scale to a reality far greater than the power we have in Jesus' name to do battle with spiritual forces of evil. And that would be this, the reality of our own salvation in the first place. 
Listen to Jesus, and for scale, I'll begin in verse 19 and read into verse 20. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, you get what he's, he's telling us here? Let's just, let's apply this. When Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, Jesus is reminding us that as we return from the mission this Christmas season, we ought to be cultivating our joy in proper proportion. Because verse 20 makes mention of a a document. A document the worth of which is beyond existing technology to calculate. Jesus tells these 72 disciples, your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. From the earliest movements of the Bible story, we see the existence of such a book. Exodus 32, 32, Moses is talking with the Lord and he refers to it as the book that you have written. Psalm 139, verse 16, speaking to God, David calls it your book, O God, your book. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3 makes reference to everyone who has been recorded for life. Finally, in Revelation 13, 8, we learn the name of the book. The full title of this book is The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Revelation 13, 8 even goes on to include the date of publication. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain was written before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits have been subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, Jesus is reminding these eager disciples, as significant as it is that they've been given power over the demonic, and it's significant, Jesus wouldn't gainsay that, that's pretty special, there is a truth of far greater value than merely engaging in spiritual warfare, and that would be that you and I are saved to begin with. That's the greatest miracle. Look, the fact of the matter is that in the Christian church and in the Christian life, we are constantly tempted to allow good things to become great things, and we allow great things to slide into the place of merely good things. Revelation 13.8 speaks of a book written before the foundation of the world, the book of the Lamb who was slain. Don Carson once wrote, I fear that the cross without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Then he says, whatever the periphery is in danger of replacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. So this Christmas is made for mission. Don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. Cultivate your joy in proper proportion. Now, Jesus' statement here in verse 20 only leads us to a second truth that we're going to discover in verses 21 and 22. So let's consider the second point this morning. It's the fifth overall. As you return from the mission this Christmas, yield to the mystery of divine election. As you return from the mission this Christmas, yield 
to the mystery of divine election. Let's take a look at verses 21 and 22. Luke 10, 21 and 22. In that same hour, He, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. As you return from the mission this Christmas, yield to the mystery of divine election. It's no coincidence that when Jesus tells the 72 to rejoice in verse 20, that He Himself gives them an example of that in verse 21. Immediately, He rejoices in the Holy Spirit over that very thing, verse 21. I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. And Father, this was Your gracious will. So This verse is loaded with surprises. Let's unpack it a little bit. Jesus is full of joy in the Holy Spirit because His Father has hidden things from some and revealed some things to others. Jesus rejoices in this. By the way, did you notice in verse 21 all three members of the Trinity are there? One of those rare verses in the Bible. The Son, the Spirit, the Father, they're all at work in this verse. The Son's the one rejoicing. He does it through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Father here who's hiding these things from some and revealing them to others. So what are these things? To get an identity on what these things are, we have to look at the broader context. Verses 20 and 22. In verse 20, Jesus speaks of names that are written in heaven. That's the immediate antecedent to these things. Names that are written in heaven. And then in verse 22, we learn that those who come to know the Father are those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, these things, I think, are a knowledge of God the Father as made possible through the Son, Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker. Jesus clearly reveals His Father to some, but not to others. You say, who gets to know the Father? The answer is found in verse 21. Jesus, exploding in praise to to the Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He's obviously not talking about people who are wise and understanding in the biblical sense, but rather wise and understanding in the eyes of the world because if they were wise and understanding in the biblical sense, they wouldn't have missed out on the knowledge of the Father. On the same token, Jesus is probably not talking about actual children here, but rather people who humble themselves like children. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in chapter 10, verse 21. So what does it mean? What's the application for us? Well, the application is bound up with the relationship between divine election on the one hand and then the call, the rigorous call to outreach and evangelism that we've been celebrating on the other hand here. What is the doctrine of election? I mean, could we summarize that in a sentence? 
We can. I mean, this is where you turn to the heavy hitters. This is, this is Wayne Grudem, theologian Wayne Grudem. This is his definition. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So let's put this together. On the one hand, Jesus appointed 72 disciples. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then he gives a litany of instructions, doesn't he? How to conduct the mission, from what to expect to what to bring to what to say. He even tells them what to eat. And then he says what to do when they reject you and what to do when they receive you. Jesus has a truckload of instructions and directives to the 72 because let's be perfectly clear, the mission will not take place without them. If they don't go, Jesus won't be made known. It's just that simple. So they must go and preach the good news. At the same time, the only ones who will ever come to know the Father are those whose names have been written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You say, is this a problem? (laughs) Well, not for the Bible. The Bible loves to hold together tensions that just make our heads explode. We tend to head in one direction or the other on the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and evangelism. In other words, some of us think that if the doctrine of election were true, that we wouldn't have to do any evangelism. Or we tend to think, since the call in the Bible for evangelism is so undeniably clear, the doctrine of election must not be true. We tend to go for one truth or the other. Well, what does the Bible do? Well, the Bible says what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So here's the reason I press the point. Some of us are going to return from a week of of Christmas parties and family reunions and New Year's get-togethers and we'll be left wondering what good our evangelistic efforts have really done in the final analysis. We feel so weak, and we are, At best, we are clay pots. And the answer to this is that apart from the doctrine of election, the fact that by an act of God before creation, he chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his good pleasure, apart from that, our efforts wouldn't matter at all. Let's hear Jesus loud and clear in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That would include evangelism that results in the conversion of unbelievers. You're asking, ought this to encourage us in our mission? And the answer is yes. A thousand times Yes. Mark it down. In the Bible, the doctrine of evangelism is not an obstacle to mission. It's an encouragement to mission. Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Antioch and Pisidia, and he delivers what really have to be among uh, the world's greatest evangelistic sermons in Acts chapter 13. And when his second sermon draws to a close, Luke observes Luke 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. Did you hear it? And as many as were appointed unto eternal life, believed. These are not unfriendly doctrines to one another in the Bible. Consider Acts chapter 18. 
Acts 18, Paul has just landed in the city of Corinth, and it seems to be that all he is encountering is resistance. This guy is working really hard, and he has very little to show for it. Resistance and unbelief are everywhere. And he goes to sleep one night, dog-tired, and he, Christ appears to him in a vision, and he says to him in Acts 18, 9, and 10, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And we're left asking, beg your pardon, Lord? Many people in Corinth? Which people? Answer, they haven't come to Christ yet. But they're elect. They're here. They have their names written in heaven. And when God is so pleased, he will, the Father will be revealed by the Son as they hear the gospel. They'll come. One final example of Paul's ministry. This one's from the end of his life. It's easily one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. You want an encouragement to evangelism this Christmas? Listen to this. It's a statement that Paul made in his last letter to Timothy, his last letter in the New Testament that bears his name. Paul is a prisoner awaiting execution in Rome. And he says to Timothy, his apostolic associate, 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You hear that? I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So do you think that way about the doctrine of election? You ought to. The doctrine of election is not an obstacle to evangelism. It's an encouragement to evangelism. It's as if the Lord were to take you out onto Harrison's Bay right now with a drill and just drill down through the ice and give you some fishing gear, and he sits with you in a fish house, and he says, drop your line in. I guarantee you will catch some fish. And yet, you've got to drop the line in. And you've got to put the bait of the gospel on the end of that hook. So friends, we can't fail. The only way to fail in evangelism is to fail to open your mouth. And I'm going to redeem the time right now by not failing to open my mouth. If you are with us today, and you do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the first thing that I want to let you know is that you are welcome in this place. We are so grateful for your attendance with us this Sunday or any Sunday. You are among friends here. And at the same time, we would not want you to leave. Whether you've been here a long time in this church or this is your first Sunday in this church, we don't want you to leave this place unconnected from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. It's the life that none of us can live. And on top of that, he died a horrifying, sacrificial, sin-bearing death on the cross. It's the death that you and I, because of our sins, we deserve to die. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you turn from your sins, you throw yourself on his mercy, what you know is that God is already active in your life, drawing you to the gospel. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him, you will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we've said in the past, these past couple of weeks, everyone who endures to the end will be saved. This morning, you can be born again, this Christmas Eve morning. 
This Christmas season was made for mission, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. As you return from the mission this Christmas, yield to the mystery of divine election. Final point. As you return from the mission this Christmas, continue to make the most of your matchless privilege. As you return from the mission this Christmas, continue to make the most of your matchless privilege. Let's finish reading our text. Chapter 10, verses 23 to 24. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Given the context, I agree with the 16th century reformer Martin Bootser who said this about these verses. He said, The Lord is not speaking here of physical seeing and hearing only and also of spiritual seeing and hearing. I think he's right, and I think the broader context of what Jesus says bears this this out. Yes, Jesus' disciples literally heard and saw a Messiah that many kings and prophets before never heard and saw with their own eyes and ears. That's true. Israel's prophets and kings up to that point had literally longed to see him with the eyes of their head and the ears and to hear him. But they were born out of time. And yet it's true that many in Jesus' day and age did see him, did hear him, and yet they didn't come to faith in him. And that's why Jesus pronounces this beatitude on the disciples. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. He's not talking about the eyes of their heads. He's talking about the eyes of their hearts. And it's at this point, if you know Jesus, that you have everything in common with the disciples in this moment. Think about it. It's Christmas Eve 2017. Think back over the arc of your life for a moment. You may have a shorter arc if you're younger and a longer arc if you're, you're older. How many Christmas Eves have you seen? I mean, they kind of pile up after a while, don't they? I've seen 40 of these. This is 41 tonight. I suppose I'm right in the middle because there's a number of you who've seen quite a few more than 40, a number of you who are younger who haven't seen that many. Point being, if you've seen even one Christmas day, that's one more than Abraham ever saw. Or Isaac or Jacob. Joseph was a remarkable man. I mean, you'd look high and low for one concrete sin that he participates in, in Genesis 37 to 50. He's sort of this golden boy. And yet there's something that Joseph never got to do. Never got to celebrate Christmas. Not one single Old Testament patriarch, prophet, or priest ever saw one single solitary Christmas. It's stunning when you think about it. And what Jesus tells his disciples privately here in verses 23 and 24, I say to you publicly in this moment, if you are a Christian, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You get a sense of the privilege that's yours today? Tonight? Tomorrow? So here's my question for you. What are you doing with your privilege? 
What are you doing with your huge advantage in Jesus Christ this Christmas? As you return from the mission this Christmas, you are undoubtedly going to Monday morning quarterback the thing to death. I know you're going to. I'm going to do that. On my way back from St. Louis, all the things I could have said, would have said, ways that I could have made more of the opportunities that God presented to me. So don't, right now, learn from yourself five days from now and go into the mission with intentionality. But you know what else you can do? After the mission is over, you come home, you can move forward. And you can put 2017, whatever kind of a year 2017 was evangelistically, you can just put that in your rearview mirror. And you can look forward with evangelistic resolve and purpose and passion into 2018. So friends, as you return from the mission this Christmas, continue to make the most of your matchless privilege. Make 2018 the year that you reach out in prayer and care and share with your list of five. Let's review. This Christmas season is made for mission, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. Six points last week and this week. Evangelistic outreach is a y'all go for the church, not a y'all come to the culture. Evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected forever. Evangelistic outreach is a reminder to folks like us that our union with Christ is inexhaustibly profound. And now we're all headed into the mission field this week and next. Can I just encourage you, be wild for Jesus. Get on your knees for lost people. Move your feet toward lost people. Open your mouth to lost people. And on the other side, on the back end, as you return from the mission this Christmas, cultivate your joy in proper proportion. Yield rest in the mystery of divine election and continue to make the most of your matchless privilege because Christmas, of course, isn't the end of our outreach. Christmas and New Year's signals a brand new season, a whole new year of mission. So let's redeem the time, Mount Free Church. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to each of you. I want to say that in advance because, Lord willing, my family will be on the road uh, shortly. Most of you know we're planning to, to leave to be on a week's vacation down in St. Louis with our family. Um, after which uh, Guy Runkle and I plan to travel to Israel from Friday, January 5th through Wednesday, January 17th. I think it might be Thursday the 18th, actually, as I look at the arrival. So while we're away, you all will have the opportunity to hear from a number of people in this pulpit. Guy Runkle, before he goes to Israel, will preach a week from this morning. Um, Tonight, you'll hear from Terry Kruger. Two weeks from this morning, Andy Kaler will preach on January 7th, and then Terry Kruger once again on, on January 14th. All of them will be leading us through the gospel according to Luke. Lord willing, I hope to be back preaching Sunday, January 21st, which also happens to be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is an incredibly special Sunday in the life of this church. We will turn our attention to the Word of God, and we will hear a sermon on the modern holocaust of abortion. But right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. With great gratitude, we thank you for the goodness of the word of God. You have given us a heads up here. All of us, Lord, one way or another, will have an opportunity to um, be near people who are far from you. And as we've been saying in recent weeks, if they're close to us, they're closer to Jesus than they and we might ever think. And so may we be hopeful 
May we move into this season with a resolve that we never have before. Fill us so full of the gospel that it's what's in a filling our hearts will come out of our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. We talk about those that we love. So Jesus, make our love for you deep and real and abiding and give us the indescribable joy of bearing glad tidings of good news to those who are around us who need to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ in their lives and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.